From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. beginning the end it's a story but that's why i'm here to tell you stories so where to start when you're in the middle of a story it isn't a story at all but only a confusion a dark roaring a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. There is nothing wrong with your television set. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Say what I think, say what I think, say what I think. I'm a complete individual, I see the individuals, individuals. I'm against communism, capitalism, fascism, Nazism. I'm against everything and I've often wondered what it would be like to be happy 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. But suddenly something seems to have happened. Suddenly something seems to have happened. I want everybody to understand this. I don't understand. I don't understand. There are a lot of things we don't understand. I don't understand. What did you expect to find? What did you expect? Who's going to be our future? It's your responsibility to do something about it. Well, I uh, I have the key in my hand. All I have to find is the lock. The lock. The lock. The lock. Do you have anything to say? I have this to say. 
have something very important to say to you, please. I, I, I think he wants to be heard. That's all. That's okay, let's hear you. Okay. I'm talking about my life. I can't seem to get that through to you. I'm not just talking about one person. I'm talking about everybody. Everybody. What, what, what do you mean? You know what I'm talking about. The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, correct, correct. And good luck. about your world. Stay tuned. Social commentator, socially commentating, what we're stipulating. Put your seatbelts on cause you're in for a howling ride Cause I am the narrator The voice that guides the blind Following up with your ears, but your mind And allow me to take you back on fall through time To explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now But won't Further down the line I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that explores new ideas and new ways of seeing and new ways of being and relating in the world with an eye to making a more beautiful and enjoyable world for everyone. My guest is James Duane, author of You Have the Right to Remain Innocent, He's a professor at Regent Law School in Virginia, where he received the Faculty Excellence Award in 2002. He's also the creator of the viral online video lecture, Don't Talk to the Police, with over 21 million views, which I watched yesterday. Oh, James, great. James Duane, welcome. Thank you very much. This is a very powerful, eye-opening book. It's very short, it's concise, and it clearly lays out the importance of knowing and asserting our Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights if we value our own personal freedom. It also reveals some of the outrageous iniquities of our justice system and presents lots of cases to back it all up. You spend most of the book laying out the reasons why we should never talk to the police or answer any of their questions. So... Why is it so important that we not talk to the police, even if we have nothing to hide? Well, the book gives at least a dozen different reasons why you shouldn't talk to the police, but the bottom line is the same. There are so many ways, unlikely, surprising ways, in which even innocent people can talk themselves into a prison cell by answering questions from the police. That's not what people ordinarily assume, though. Unfortunately, tragically, the average man on the street, his thought is, well, since I know in my heart I've done nothing wrong, I've got nothing to hide, then surely I've got no reason to tell the police I won't answer their questions. I'll talk to them as long as they want me to. And the police, by the way, they know that's how you think, and they will intentionally prey upon your ignorance and upon your good faith by keeping you in the holding center or in an interrogation room for six, seven, eight hours or more, if that's what they need to do to get you to say enough to eventually give them something they can use to incriminate you or to convict you. That's why the geniuses who wrote the Fifth Amendment 
designed it in such a way that it would provide its generous protections to guilty people and uh, to the innocent as well. Right. So we have this presumption of innocence in our legal system. However, it seems to me that when the police or government agents are questioning suspects, they are presuming guilt or they're operating on the presumption of guilt. Well, unfortunately, that's often true. I'm not saying it's always true. Of course, it's not always true. There are plenty of situations where a police officer will be meeting with somebody and questioning somebody, and the police officer actually doesn't even suspect or believe that this individual was involved. They might think that he's just a witness. He's got some information about crimes that were committed for us about other people. But the problem is you don't know what you're up against. When a police officer meets with you and asks you if you wouldn't mind answering a couple of questions to help clear things up, our legal system doesn't require him to be honest or straight with you or to put his cards on the table. You might be a criminal suspect, but then again, you might just be somebody they hope to get some information out of. But they don't have to tell you the truth, and usually they won't. Police officers are trained at the academy how to lie to you effectively and how to manipulate you and to deceive you and to confuse you in the ways that are calculated to get you to give up your constitutional right to remain silent. One of the most common ways to do that, by the way, is to downplay the seriousness of the situation. Even though, for example, suppose the police have met with a witness, maybe it was a victim or maybe it was just some other witness to a crime, who has already told the police that they're pretty sure you were there or that you were the one who committed the crime. It may well be that the witness is mistaken or confused. Eyewitnesses are notoriously unreliable. They're often wrong. But the police don't. They're only human. They don't know who's right and who's wrong. And then they'll come and they'll meet with you, and they won't tell you that you've already been identified by someone. In fact, they'll, they'll sometimes do just the opposite. They'll say, well, we know you weren't involved. We know you're not a killer. We know you're not a suspect. We know you'd have no reason to do this. When in their heart, they actually believe just the opposite. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, good, good. Uh, no reason for me to be worried or defensive, and that's exactly what they want you to think. They're trying to intentionally deceive you into letting down your guard and they're thinking, okay, nothing to hide, nothing to be afraid of here. I'll go ahead and answer their questions. And far too often, people who make that fateful mistake later regret it for the rest of their life as the biggest mistake they've ever made. And the book gives numerous, dozens and dozens of examples of people who've just done exactly that and spent the rest of their life regretting it. Why don't you give us a good example of that? Well, my goodness, the book has done this. Well, just one example, for example, is the unspeakably tragic case of Glenn Ford. He was convicted more than 30 years ago in Louisiana, down near New Orleans, of a murder that he didn't even commit. Not only was he convicted, by the way, he was sentenced to death, and he spent more than 30 years on death row before evidence recently came to light that actually proved that he was innocent. Even the prosecutor's office admitted that we now know that he was innocent, and he was therefore released with our profuse apologies, so sorry we told the fellow, so sorry this happened, we'll try to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Well, how did this happen? How did we convict a man of a murder that he didn't commit and deprive him of 30 years of his life on death row? When you go back and you look at the trial transcript and look at the record on appeal, which I did for this book, you'll find out that the police had almost no evidence against this guy, except for honest information that was involuntarily given to them by this innocent man. They were investigating a shooting that took place a murder that took place in a jewelry store, and this Mr. Ford had done some occasional handiwork, odd jobs for this jeweler. And the police heard that he had sometimes done work for the fella, and so they put the word out that they wanted to meet with this guy. If he had simply said, no, I'm not going to talk to you, they never would have had a case against him. He never would have spent a day in jail. But instead, he foolishly said, he did foolishly what most people would ordinarily do. Oh, it's a murder case. I, I want to help them solve this. I want to help them get to the bottom of this. So he went in, turned himself in, went down there to meet with them and give them a little information. 
And when they asked him if he had been there at the scene of the crime, if he had killed the guy, he told the truth. He said, no, I didn't kill anybody. I, I never killed anyone, which is true. But he said, you know, funny coincidence, I was actually there in that man's shop that very same day, right around the same time that somebody else shot him. And why were you there, they asked him. And then foolishly, he told them the truth. He said, well, funny coincidence, I was looking for work. I needed some money. I asked him if he would hire me, and he said no. And then I said, well, will you at least let me borrow some money? And he turned me down for that, too. And then what you happened? Well, then I left. And he didn't admit that he was involved in any kind of a crime. But unfortunately, as you can see, he admitted that he was there at about the time that somebody shot the man. And he also admitted that the man had just turned him down on a request for a loan, which in the eyes of the police and the eyes of the jury and Louisiana Supreme Court all provided compelling circumstantial evidence that he had both the motive and the opportunity. The jury and the state Supreme Court unanimously agreed that these circumstances couldn't be written off as mere coincidence. 30 years later, we find out, actually, no, it really was a coincidence. And it was a coincidence that he was not able to explain away to the jury or to the prosecutor or to the state Supreme Court. But it's a coincidence he never would have had to explain to anybody if he hadn't told them about it, if he had just simply kept his mouth shut. Instead, he paid dearly for that mistake by spending more than 30 years on death row. Tell your listeners to get the book. The book contains numerous examples of the same sort of thing happening again and again, usually under circumstances where most of your listeners will say, Geez, I can't imagine how the answer to that question could get you in trouble. But by the time you're halfway through the book, you start to get to see the pattern. You see, you realize, oh, my goodness, if I agree to talk to the police, there's no telling what I'm up against. There's no telling what they think they know or what they suspect or what they think they can prove. They don't have to put their cards on the table. And if they do put cards on the table, our legal system allows them to lie through their teeth all day and all night about what they really believe or what they really know. It's not a situation that any sane man would ever voluntarily agree to participate in. And nobody who reads this book will ever, ever agree to talk to the police again. Mm, yeah, this book is must-reading. But I want to get back to, you say that this kind of lying and deception in the interview or interrogation process is totally acceptable and that the courts allow that. Why? Why do they allow that, especially when we average citizens can get up to five years in prison if we knowingly give false <laughs> information? That's a great question. You know, the truth is, it's almost a reflection of the way in which our legal system is somewhat schizophrenic. I mean, because on the one hand, we've got this bold, majestic constitutional promise that says you don't have to talk to the police, you have a right to remain silent. And yet at the same time, we've got these numerous other facets of the same criminal justice system that send exactly the opposite message, that says that police should be emboldened and empowered and equipped and encouraged to do everything within their power to trick you, coerce you, deceive you, manipulate you, and have given up that right. Well, then why give them the right in the first place? It seems really quite paradoxical. And the simple truth is, it's because our system is schizophrenic, because these legal rules that we're talking about were handed down to us by two totally different generations of judges and legal scholars. The Fifth Amendment was written 200 years ago, a little more than 200 years ago, by some of the most well-educated, erudite, and brilliant legal geniuses in the history of this country. People with the sophistication and the intellect to understand how easily and how often even innocent people could find themselves in a position where they could fear corrupt or illegitimate criminal prosecution. And for many of the founding fathers, this was vivid personal experience from their own recent memories of the late unpleasantness at the time with the British Empire. But those days are gone, long gone now. Today we find ourselves in a situation in the past 50 years where many prominent judges, including the justices on the Supreme Court, far, far too many of them are former prosecutors who don't know what it's like to be a criminal defendant or a criminal suspect or even a criminal defense attorney. And these people, by and large, who now are running the legal system, have unfortunately taken it as a given 
that just the opposite is the truth, that the Fifth Amendment is only for the guilty, that the innocent don't need it, that only a guilty man would ever assert the Fifth Amendment privilege. And that's why we now find ourselves in a situation where, on the one hand, we've got the Fifth Amendment sending one message, but all these new legal doctrines and legal rulings from the Supreme Court and other recent federal courts that are actually sending the exact opposite message. And that's why we've got this extraordinary tension. The bottom line is that the Fifth Amendment now is, is more precious now today than to your listeners and other American citizens than at any other time in American history. But people don't understand this. They don't know this. Too many of them think, okay, if I know that I'm innocent, I've got nothing to hide. That's the wrong mindset, and it can get you in the greatest trouble of your entire life. You also say that if you invoke your Fifth Amendment rights, that can also get you into trouble. Yes, and that's also another one of the most important parts of this book. And that's a fairly recent legal development, by the way. That wasn't even true eight years ago when I made that video, that famous viral video you talked about. You know, eight years ago, you ask any lawyer, any criminal defense attorney, what do you think about how I should handle this? And they'll say, tell the police you're taking the fifth. And many defense attorneys back in those days handed out business cards to their clients with a little message on the back, just read this to the police. On the advice of counsel, I decline to answer on the grounds that it may incriminate me. And that's the advice that just about every lawyer gave their clients back in those days, because back in those days, it was universally assumed and understood that the jury at your trial would never find out that you were taking the fifth. Fifty years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court, in the Miranda case, held that it is illogical and unconstitutional and unfair to try to use against the defendant the fact that he chose to remain silent or to use that as evidence of his guilt. And the court was right. It was illogical, and it was unfair, and it was unconstitutional. But in the past 50 years, we now have a Supreme Court that just a few years ago, three years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court, in an incredible decision, an unprecedented decision, the court held by a vote of five to four that they can use, at least certain times, certain circumstances, the police and the prosecutor can use against you the fact that you chose to exercise your right to remain silent, and they can tell the jury about it, and the jury, if they want, can use that, if they wish, as evidence of your guilt, which, of course, the jury will be quite likely to do. Because if the jury doesn't know much from personal experience about the criminal justice system, they have no idea how many reasons there are for innocent criminal suspects to assert the Fifth Amendment privilege. And it will be easy to convict this guy. So the second half of my book is devoted to an explanation of all the pitfalls that are now being created in our legal system. In this minefield now, it didn't even exist five years ago. And all the different ways in which your invocation or your assertion under the Fifth Amendment privilege might later come back to subject you to a different criminal prosecution for lying to the police or possibly to be used as evidence against you of your guilt. As I explained in the book, therefore, the Fifth Amendment privilege has become the constitutional right that dare not speak its name. I'm not suggesting that the privilege is less important or less valuable. On the contrary, it's more precious now than ever before. But you should no longer tell the police, well, I'd rather not talk to you because I'm afraid that it might incriminate me. Because heaven help you, if that prosecutor persuades the judge to let the jury learn that you said those words, your assertion of that constitutional privilege could be construed as if it were a confession. The smarter, better, safer course now by far is not to plead the fifth, but to plead the sixth. I'm referring to the Sixth Amendment right to a lawyer. Just tell the police, I'll talk to you, sure. Just give me a lawyer, and then we'll take it from there. You talk about the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia's role in undermining the sanctity of our Fifth Amendment rights. And it's the quote-unquote conservatives on the court that have taken this position against taking, asserting our Fifth Amendment rights. What, what's going on? Well, it, that's part of the problem, yes. That's partly true. I mean, the case I talked about a moment ago, the most recent Supreme Court opinion on this point, it was a 5-4 to four decision. And the five justices who sided with the federal government and the state of Texas in that case were the five most conservative members of the court and the only five who had been put on the Supreme Court by Republican presidents. 
which, of course, is going to prompt many cynical observers on the left to say, well, there you go, that's the problem with those Republicans. That's why you can't trust these people in office. But to give blame and to give credit where blame and credit are due, the reality is that those five Republican conservative justices were talked into adopting that position by Eric Holder and the Barack Obama Justice Department, the supposedly liberal Justice Department of Barack Obama, argued in the Supreme Court that this is the right way to go and that the Fifth Amendment should be severely truncated in this way. So it would be a little too simple today to say, well, Democrats are the good guys and liberals are the only remaining defenders, because that's not true. Today we find ourselves in a situation where Justice Scalia and Roberts and Alito and the most conservative members of the Supreme Court are joined in an ungodly and unholy alliance with Barack Obama and Eric Holder and the United States Department of Justice, which are waging a kind of a pincer movement against the Fifth Amendment under attack from the left and the right. Sometimes I feel like the voice of one crying in the wilderness, <laughs> standing up all by myself trying to get the message out that they're both wrong. Absolutely wrong about this. But that doesn't make me, I mean, I'm kidding when I say, it's not like I'm a solitary figure or the only one who understands this. The Supreme Court understood this very, very clearly 50 years ago. And every criminal defense lawyer in the country, every prosecutor in the country, every police officer in this country knows full well how the system works and why it is that what the Supreme Court is now saying is wrong. And what Barack Obama's Justice Department said was absolutely wrong. It is not logical much less fair or lawful to invite a jury to convict a man because he didn't want to answer a couple of questions or wanted to assert his Fifth Amendment privilege. That is not logically proof or even evidence of his guilt. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, one of the newest members of the Supreme Court, she gave a speech earlier this year. She was complaining about the lack of diversity on the Supreme Court, and with good reason. And she made the pointed complaint that there's nobody on the Supreme Court who's ever served as a criminal defense lawyer. You know, we, we worry and talk so much about what we call diversity on the court. What we call diversity is the superficial kind of diversity that comes from having people of different genders and different races. But the nine people on the Supreme Court at the time of Justice Scalia's recent death didn't include a single one who had ever devoted any significant time to the defense of the representation of any criminal defendants. Almost all nine of them had spent their entire life working for the federal government in various capacities, many of them as prosecutors. So you're not going to get a rich variety of perspectives just because you put on people of different genders or races. We really need to get real diversity on the Supreme Court. Go back to the days when we actually have a few people there on the court who have some real-world experience with the way the criminal justice system actually operates. There's no other way we're going to be able to avoid such horribly reasoned decisions. You also talk about the problem of all the laws that are on the books and that are constantly being created, and you quote Justice Breyer talking about that issue in relation to this problem of talking, of volunteering information to the police. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, that's the other half of the problem altogether. I mean, we, you and I, we've been talking about all the different situations in which you could end up getting convicted of a crime that you didn't commit, but at least you heard, heard about it. I mean, everybody knows that murder is a crime. But the other half of the problem is the terrible reality of what's often known as over-criminalization, the distressing tendency of lazy legislatures both at the federal and at the state level, every time some kind of a problem comes along, they write some brand new criminal statute. And instead of taking the time of writing a statute that is carefully worded and directly tailored and limited specifically at the situation in hand, they find it so much easier to just write a statute that is chock full of long laundry lists of verbs and nouns and adjectives, everything that sounds roughly synonymous to what we're trying to control here. And the result is that everybody in America today is a felon. You may not have been arrested or charged or convicted, and maybe you never will, but everybody in America today has committed multiple felonies. There are so many on the books, tens of thousands of them. And most of them have no correspondence and don't coincide in any way with common sense. You know, so you can no longer let common sense or your conscience be your guide in trying to decide whether you have anything to be afraid of. Lots of examples in this book. 
that your listeners need to see about people who got caught up in the system, the criminal justice system, convicted and sent to prison because they did something that who nobody would ever imagine would be a crime. Here in Virginia, for example, one of the examples in the book, there is a ridiculous statute on the books that says it is illegal to kill wild animals unless you've got certain authorization or permission. But they didn't stop there. The statute also goes on to say not just a crime to kill wild animals, it's also a crime to kill or to transport or to possess not just the animal, but anything that is or ever was part of the animal or the carcass of the animal. Now, who's guilty of violating that law? Everybody in the state. There isn't anybody in the entire state who doesn't own something in his house that was once upon a time part of a wild animal. Maybe it's just a shark tooth necklace that you picked up in the Bahamas. Or maybe it was a seashell that you picked up down at the ocean. That was once part of a wild animal, right? Or maybe it's a pet butterfly or a pet snake or a pet frog that your child picked up in the backyard and brought into the house in the garage. That's a crime under Virginia law. I'm not saying you'll be prosecuted for that. You probably won't be. Although in the book, I describe one man who was told by law enforcement authorities that he was guilty of a crime because he was found in possession of a pair of deer antlers that he had found on his own property. He didn't shoot the deer. He didn't kill the deer. Nobody did. They were shed by the deer. He picked them up and thought they'd look good in his office. Now, who in their right mind would ever imagine that you could actually be prosecuted or that it could be a crime to be in possession of a pair of deer antlers that you found in the wild on land that you own yourself? Nobody. But that's the problem that we have on our hands today. That's just another reason why only a fool will agree to talk to the police or anybody from the government these days because you don't know what you're up against. You have no idea what evidence they might have or think they have against you. And even worse, you don't even have any idea whether your conduct might have been something for which you could be criminally prosecuted. So now that we know that there's so many ways that we could be incriminated, how do police trick people into giving false confessions and giving information that is not in their best interest? Ah, I see. Yeah, sure. Well, there are many different ways the police can use. The common theme is dishonesty and deception. I'm not saying the police officers are generally dishonest people by nature. I hope and assume that at home they're as honest as everybody else. In fact, I suspect that they are. And it's nothing personal that I got against the police. It's not their fault. They didn't design the system. They're just operating to the best of their limited ability in a highly imperfect system that they did not design. But they are trained at the academy in all kinds of sophisticated ways that they can use dishonesty and deception to try to trick you and giving up your right to remain silent by deceiving you into thinking that it's in your best interest when they know for a fact that's not true. And they can use all different kinds of deception that are described in my book. Sometimes what they'll do is they'll exaggerate the evidence against you. They'll say, we've got three witnesses who say that you were there. And they'll do this for hours, even if it's a lie. We know that you were there. We've got your fingerprints. We found them at the scene of the crime, which is not even true. They're making this up. But they're taking the liberty because they're thinking to themselves, well, if he's guilty, we're going to trick him into thinking that we've got him to rights and he'll be afraid of taking a chance that he'll admit it. And great, that works on guilty people. But we found out it also works on innocent people, too. Because even innocent people, especially if they've got limited mental abilities or they've been up for eight hours of non-relenting interrogation in the middle of the night, not surprisingly, even some of them think to themselves, oh, God, I know I'm innocent. I know I didn't do it. And if anybody's saying I was there, I know they're lying. But this cop has been telling me now for eight hours that they've got three witnesses. And he's telling them that my best friend is down the hall in another room and that my best friend has said that I did it. Which, by the way, may well be another lie. But you can't blame an innocent person in that situation for thinking to themselves, oh my God, I I guess I better admit that I was there because it sounds like they're going to be able to convict me one way or another. And this cop is sitting there, to make matters worse, making lies 
and lying representations about how it's going to go better for you if you admit that you did it. If you tell us that you did it, maybe you won't be prosecuted. Maybe you won't go to jail. Maybe you won't be given any punishment. I mean, you can't blame an innocent person in that situation if they think, well, okay, they say that they've got all these rock-solid proof against me. Looks like they say they can convict me in a heartbeat, which may, unbeknownst to you, be a total lie. And they're also telling me that if I admit that I did it, they'll make sure the judge goes easy on me, which may also be a total lie. But of course, that's going to be likely to talk or trick somebody into thinking, well, I'll admit that I did it, even if I didn't. And then at the other extreme, very often, just as often, police officers will trick you by minimizing the evidence against you. They'll say, oh, we know you weren't involved, Johnny. We know you're not a killer. We know you wouldn't do it. You're, you're not even a suspect. In fact, you're on our team. You're on our side. We plan to use you as a witness against the other kids who were there. Yeah, you're going to be a witness for the prosecution. You're going to be the star member of our team. And every word of it is a lie sometimes. I'm not saying it's always a lie, but the problem is you don't know what's going on. You don't know what they really mean and what they really believe. And the courts let them get away with it all day, every day, all over the country. People are tricked into making damaging admissions through stunts and tricks like these. And the courts say, I don't have a problem with that. Sure, you can use that statement against him. You can convict him on the basis of information like that. When anybody with a lick of common sense ought to understand that you can't logically trust information that is extracted from somebody with lying promises like those. But our system allows it. And there's another so, interesting thing. You say that a suspect's testimony can only be used against them and never in their defense. Yes. Which is bizarre. <laughs> yeah, that's another big surprise that your listeners will find out when they read the book. Because it does come as a big surprise to most people. And by the way, it comes as a big surprise, largely because that's another one of the top 500 lies that police love to tell. The police will, if they're trying to get you to talk, one of the most common lies that they'll tell you. I mean, it sounds awful harsh to call it a lie, but I don't want to sugarcoat this. That's exactly what it is. It's not true, and they know it's not true. They'll sit there and they'll tell you, listen, Tonio, I want to help you, but you're going to help me. I want to give the judge some information. I want to tell him your side of the story. I want to be able to present it to him, but you've got to tell me now because this is your last chance, which is ridiculous. It is unadulterated falsehood from top to bottom. This isn't your last chance, not by a long shot. And in addition, if you do spill the beans, if you do say to the police, oh, okay, I'll tell you my side of the story. Here's what happened. Here's what I saw. Here's how it all went down. When that case goes to trial, if your lawyer calls the cop to the witness stand and says, will you tell the jury what Tony O, the defendant, told you, officer? The prosecutor will say, objection, that's hearsay. And the judge will say, I agree. They won't let the police officer answer the question. But if the prosecutor at that trial asks the officer, well, officer, tell the jury about the parts of the statement where Tony O actually admitted that he was there and that he had the motive to commit the crime. The police officer will be allowed to do that because under the rules of evidence, what you say out of court cannot be used in your defense. The jury will never learn about it. And the police will tell you that it can be, but they're lying and they know it. But it can be used against you. This means, by the way, that if you agree to talk to the police for five hours and you give them 600 pieces of information, and 595 of those details all help your defense, only five of the things that you admit actually look bad for you. The chances are that when that case goes to trial, all the jury's going to hear about from the police officer are the five things you told him that hurt your case. And they'll never hear about the other 595. The prosecutor is allowed to cherry pick with impunity to go through your 20-page statement or your five-hour recorded interrogation and just pick out a couple of lines where you admit a couple of things that sound a little suspicious and can be used to help convict you. And that's all the jury's going to learn about. So what it's do, an incredible state of affairs. Yeah. So what do police advise their own children when it comes to being confronted by the police? Exactly what I'm telling you. They say don't talk to the police, which is unspeakably ironic. In the last eight years, I have gone around the country. I've spoken to literally thousands of college and law school students about this subject. And everywhere, I, almost everywhere I go, I'll ask them. I'll say, hey, anybody here who's got a parent, mom or dad who's a cop or a prosecutor? And there's usually one or two. 
And I'll say, what did they tell you about the Fifth Amendment? What did they tell you about whether you should talk to the police? And every single one of them, 100%, without exception, without fail, every single one of them said, no, they said the same thing to me. They said, don't ever talk to the police. I mean, imagine that. The police officers in this country, all over the country, day in and day out, are lying to other people's children, saying, hey, listen, listen, I'm on your side. I want to help you. But you got to talk to me which is all false, and they know that it's false. And sometimes young people are tricked into giving up 60 years of their liberty with lies like these, and some of them are innocent. How many will never know for sure, but way too many are innocent. And then these same police officers, when they're off duty, they go home at night with tears in their eyes. They reach out and they grab their kids, and they say, come here, come here, Rebecca, Tonio. They say, promise me for the love of God that as long as you live, you'll never, ever let any police officer do to you what I do to everybody else's kids when I'm at work. That's obscene. That hypocrisy and that double standard is absolutely obscene. I'm not blaming the police. They didn't design the system to work the way that it does. They're caught up in it just like the rest of us. But I'm determined the point behind this book is to make sure that everybody in America, not just police officers and their children, will know how the system works and how the deck is stacked against you if you foolishly give up your right to remain silent. Nobody who reads this book will ever make that mistake again. And I guarantee you if enough people read this book, if we can find a way to help get this book in the hands of every young person in America, the number of innocent people falsely convicted will drastically decline and fast. That's what it's all about. That's why I wrote the book. Mm. So what is your bottom line advice to somebody who's accosted by a police officer asking questions about where they've been or what they've done recently? <laughs> uh, two words. Hell no. <laughs> no. Don't be rude. Don't be disrespectful. Don't show any contempt or lack of courtesy because it has the tendency to make this thing get worse in a hundred different possible ways. It can quickly escalate out of control, and that's totally unnecessary. There's no need for any hostility toward the police. But do not answer their questions. You tell them very respectfully, unequivocally, and emphatically, Sir, I'm happy to answer your questions, but not until we can get a lawyer involved. Give me a lawyer first, and then we'll talk. But until then, I'm not going to answer your questions. That's what you got to do. Trust me, that's what the police officers and their kids are going to do if the tables are ever turned and anybody ever asks them if they want to answer a couple of questions. Look at Lois Lerner, one of the highest-ranking officials of the Department of Internal Revenue Service. She spent an entire career trying to trick and browbeat and shame and intimidate people into giving up their right to remain silent all day, every day. But when the tables are suddenly turned and she finds she's the subject of a congressional investigation, oh, now she's taking the fifth. Now she's taking the fifth, and she's going to retire and collect the pension to boot. Mm. <laughs> it's very ironic and thank you so much for being on the show well thank you for your time if you're interested and that was james duane he's professor at regent law school in virginia and he's the author of this concise and to the point book that if you are concerned about your own personal liberty and freedom or the personal liberty and freedom of your children or anybody that you know and care about you need to read this book, You Have the Right to Remain Innocent, by James Duane. And up next, we're going to hear his famous 
Don't Talk to Police lecture, which ends with a Virginia police officer with 28 years experience at the time of the lecture, over 20, over eight years ago. I was invited to give you a taste of a typical law school classroom experience here today, and I thought I would take advantage of this opportunity to do something that's been on my mind for a while. To stand up and to proudly say, God bless America, God bless the Bill of Rights, and thank God for the Fifth Amendment. I'm not ashamed to say I'm proud of the Fifth Amendment, and I'm, not, I'm proud to admit on camera and on the Internet that I will never talk to any police officer under any circumstances, with all due respect, sir. <laughs> I'm doing something really extraordinary here today, something you'll almost never see another law professor do as long as you live. I'm really putting myself on the spot here. At my, this was my idea. By my invitation, I have given up half of my time, approximately. I'm giving equal time and the last word to an expert who really knows something about what I'll be talking about. So I'm opening myself up to the possibility that he will contradict me. I was a criminal defense attorney when I was in private practice. So I want to make sure, in fairness to you, if I'm misleading you or giving you a slanted or one-sided presentation, you'll be able to get the last word from somebody else. I'm sure he'll have a lot to teach all of us, including myself. The Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution provides, no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. And this unfortunate amendment has gotten a bad rep in, in recent times. Much of it, uh, tragically and unnecessarily, through, as you may have heard, the headlines. There was a recent Regent Law School graduate who was in all the news for a couple of weeks. She was an outstanding former student of mine, and she really got quite a lot of undeserved flack for the fact that she chose to exercise her right to remain silent when the Senate wanted to ask her certain questions that arguably might have tended to incriminate her. All of the world was aghast. The Christian community in particular looked at this and said, how could a Christian do such a thing? How could a Christian take the Fifth Amendment? And I said, you go, girlfriend. I do the same thing. I'll do it every time. And I want to talk to you about why that's true, but first a quick listening test. Let me read to you something that uh, was taken out of the newspaper this morning, and I want you to listen to it closely. And I'm giving you a heads up. I'm warning you in advance, which is not fair to you. Not fair to me, but I'm giving you a, head to, I'm giving you a warning that I'll be quizzing you on this in just a few minutes. This will test your aptitude for legal study and legal practice. Listen closely. It won't take long. Last night, agents of the Norfolk Police Department found three victims of an apparent murder dead in an apartment in the East Ocean View area. The apparent victims of a gangland-style slaying and possibly the victims of gang-related violence. The police are investigating this as a possible murder and suicide, but right now suspect that the three were all killed by the same individual. No suspects have yet been identified in the slaying, but veteran police detective George Brooke has confirmed that police are following up on evidence pointing to the possible involvement of an off-duty naval officer as the perpetrator. The bodies, which were found by the apartment manager at about 8 o'clock in the morning, appear to have been slain sometime earlier in the same evening, probably sometime between midnight and 2 o'clock in the morning. That's it. Those are all the facts I'll ask you to remember, and it won't be for very long either. Let's see how well you do. I'll be quizzing you in just a few minutes. Now, here's the easiest question you'll ever get from a client in all the days of your life. Question, hey, the police are here. They want to talk to me. What should I do? Well, I could give you my answer to that question in case you haven't already guessed it, but why don't we go to a real expert? Justice Robert Jackson, 
A prosecutor's prosecutor. Like me, he began his private practice in Buffalo, New York, years before I did. And after that, he served as general counsel for the Bureau of Internal Revenue, the U.S. Department of Treasury, the Security and Exchange Commission, Assistant U.S. Attorney General for the Tax Division, later the Solicitor General and the Attorney General of the United States, and then the Chief U.S. Prosecutor for the Nuremberg Trials. That's an impressive resume. Years later, when he was a justice on the Supreme Court, Justice Jackson stated, quote, any lawyer worth his salt, today we would say his or her, will tell the suspect, his client, in no uncertain terms to make no statement to the police under any circumstances. There's the title of my talk. I'm here to explain to you the surprising and somewhat counterintuitive and admittedly unlikely reasons why Justice Jackson was right. I'm reminded of this because I'm amazed, we're all amazed, by the frequency with which we see newspaper articles coming out all the time from people who really ought to know better, who say, well, I'll, I'll talk to the police. I mean, after all, I'm, I'm a senator. I'm, uh, I'm O.J. Simpson. I'm, uh, I'm an experienced, highly polished individual. I've got a lot of experience with public relations, even criminal defense attorneys. There was a local news story here in the Virginia Pilot just a couple of months ago about an experienced criminal defense lawyer who ended up getting convicted of criminal assault because he talked to the police. He was accused of having assaulted another attorney in the hallway. There were no other witnesses to this. A woman said that he grabbed her by the throat during an argument over a case. He denied it. At trial, it was his word against hers. He said, I did not even touch her. But unfortunately for him, when the police had approached him earlier and said, would you be willing to answer some questions? He said, sure, why not? I'm, a, I'm an attorney. I'm a criminal defense attorney. I'm savvy. I'm sophisticated. I've got oratorical prowess. I'm, I'm accustomed to dealing with the police, by all means. And then there was a conversation that was not recorded. When the case went to trial, it was no longer his word against hers, because when he testified at trial, I never touched her. The officer took her to the stand and testified, well, when I met with him, he said he did put his hand on her throat, but just as a joke. Then he had to take the stand again and say, that's not true. I never said that. I never admitted to you that I, now it's his word against two people. Who's telling the truth? We'll never know for sure. But he was found guilty. Now, here's part of the problem. The heart of the problem, as Justice Breyer on the U.S. Supreme Court explained in 1998, is, quote, the complexity of modern federal criminal law codified in several thousand sections of the United States Code and the virtually infinite variety of factual circumstances that might trigger an investigation into a possible violation of the law make it difficult for anyone to know in advance just when a particular set of statements might later appear to a prosecutor to be relevant to some investigation. One expert on criminal law recently noted that estimates of the current size of the body of federal criminal law vary, although it has been reported that the Congressional Research Service can no longer even count the current number of federal crimes. That's right, even the federal government has lost count. These laws are scattered over all 50 pages of the U.S. Code, encompassing roughly 27,000 pages. Worse yet, these statutes often incorporate by reference the provisions of administrative regulations. Estimates of how many such regulations exist are even less well settled, although the ABA thinks there may be nearly 10,000. Here's one of those 10,000 federal criminal statutes on the book that you probably never heard about. It's called the Lacey Act, 16 U.S.C. Section 3370, says it's a federal offense for any person to import, export, transport, sell, receive, acquire, or purchase any fish or wildlife or plant taken, possessed, transported, or sold in a violation of any law, treaty, or regulation of the United States or any Indian tribal law or any state or any foreign law. 
People have been convicted in federal court for violating this statute because they brought back a bony fish from Honduras, not knowing that Honduran law, not American, but Honduran law, forbade the possession of the bony fish. People have been convicted under this law because they were found in possession of a, what's called a short lobster. A lobster that's under a certain size. Some states forbid you from possessing a lobster if he's under a certain length. It doesn't matter if he's dead or alive. It doesn't matter if you killed it or if he died of natural causes. It doesn't even matter if you acted in self-defense. Did you know that? Did you know it could be a federal offense to be in possession of a lobster? Admit it. Raise your hand if you did not know that. There's the problem. And that's only one of 10,000 different ways. You know, the government gets pretty upset when people like me instructs the client, people like me and Justice Jackson. Don't talk to the police. Don't answer any questions. But, you know, they can't have it both ways. You people, you've got 10,000 different ways of convicting us. Good for you, but, you know... With the bitter comes to the sweet, with the good comes to the bad. That's 10,000 different ways my client might unknowingly implicate himself in some sort of a criminal transaction. One of the reasons I decided to give this talk, I recently received a phone call from a former student of mine, a regional law school graduate, who may be watching this online. We're putting it on the internet. And he told me, hey, I've been approached by the Internal Revenue Service. They want to ask me a couple of questions. They ask if I'd be willing to. Uh, but they say that I'm not a suspect. And I know in my heart I don't think I've done anything wrong in violation of the Internal Revenue Service provisions. Lord have mercy. <laughs> there's no man on earth, there's no, there's no woman in this country who can honestly say with complete confidence, I know I have never violated any provision of the Internal Revenue Code. He said, but, but they, they say I'm not a suspect and I know I've done nothing wrong. It's okay if I talk to him. I said, no, no, you tell them you will not talk to them without immunity. I explained to him why that was true and they never, he never heard from them again. Okay, why you should never talk to the police. Let me just spell it out for you. Let me make it plain to all of you. These are the top ten reasons. I, I don't want to actually really lie to you. I don't really have ten. I don't have time for ten. But I've got time for eight, and that'll be close enough. Number one, and this really ought to be good enough. Contrary to what you laymen instinctively and naturally suppose, it cannot help. There is no way it can help you. Plenty of folks think that it can, and they're always wrong. You cannot talk your way out of getting arrested. Officer Brooke, you've interviewed thousands of criminal suspects. Have you ever, how many times in your experience, have you approached someone, asked if you could ask them some questions because prior to the interview, you had some evidence pointing to his possible guilt? And because of the extraordinary persuasiveness and eloquence with which he articulated his innocence, you said, oh, sorry, never mind. Bad call, my bad, I won't. And you, he talked you out of arresting him. Never. Never. It never happens. I've often asked other criminal defense attorneys, in all of your experience, have you ever once had a case where you looked back in hindsight and said, thank God my client talked to the police? They laugh at me. They laugh at me. They say, you've got to be kidding me. You cannot help you. You can't talk your way out of getting arrested. And contrary to what you might suppose if you never studied the rules of evidence, what you tell the police, even if it's exculpatory, cannot be used to help you at trial. Because it's what we call hearsay. Under the rules of evidence, specifically Rule 801D2A, if you want to look it up, uh, everything you tell the police, as the saying goes, can and will be used against you, but it cannot be used for you. From time to time, I've known attorneys who tried to call to the stand a police officer and say, Officer, would you tell the jury what my client told you because what my client told him is actually good for my case? If you tried that at trial, the prosecutor will object to that it's hearsay, and the judge will agree. The police will not be allowed at your request to tell the jury what your client told him, no matter how good it may be for your case. It cannot help. And that ought to be good enough reason. That ought to be reason enough to keep your mouth shut. But if you're not persuaded, let me go talk about a couple of others. Number two, obviously one of the most obvious, if your client is guilty, as many of them are, but even if he's not, even if he's innocent, he may well admit his guilt with no benefit in return. Now, of course, many of you are thinking to yourself, well, what's so wrong about that? 
I mean, shouldn't guilty people be confessing? Confession's good for the soul. It's good for law enforcement. It's good for the prisons. Yes, yes, sure, all those things are true. And like the rest of you, if I or anyone close to me is ever the victim of some sort of a serious crime, I hope they get the right guy. I hope they convict him. I hope they put him away. We all feel that way. Hey, but what's the rush, friends? You don't got to admit your guilt the first time they come by to meet with you. In federal court, 86% of all defendants plead guilty at some point before trial. If your client is guilty and really ought to punish and really ought to have a uh, go through some sort of a cleansing act of contrition and fess up and admit his guilt, there'll be plenty of time to do that. They almost always do. No need to rush. No need to tell the police something. Wait and see if we, perhaps your client can work out some sort of an arrangement where maybe he'll make some sort of compensation to the alleged victim, or maybe he'll be able to get some sort of a discount in his sentence. And he'll be able to treat, he'll be treated fairly then, like everybody else who had the benefit of a good lawyer who said, please do not talk to the police. And don't forget, by the way, even if, even if your client only admits things that the police already knew, you might think, well, what harm can it do? He says he wants to talk to the police. All he wants to do is admit that he was there, that the cops know that he was there. All right, go ahead and tell them. Well, how can it hurt? It might hurt if the police officer becomes transferred to Minnesota or deceased or injured or comatose or cannot be located by the time of trial. The case will be dismissed if there's no confession. But if your client admits two things, uh, that confession is freely admissible against him and can be a basis for getting him convicted all by himself. Senator Larry Craig can explain all of this to you. <laughs> The Innocence Project of the United States has confirmed that in more than 25% of all the cases where an innocent man was convicted and then later released from prison after he was exonerated by DNA evidence, in more than a quarter of those cases, these innocent people, people we know to be innocent, made incriminating statements, delivered outright confessions, or pled guilty. How do they do that? He'll tell us all about it, I trust. Here's a couple of famous examples. You can just ask them. You don't have to take my word for it. There on the left was Eddie Joe Lloyd. He was convicted in 1984 of the murder of a 16-year-old girl in Detroit after he wrote to police with suggestions on how to solve various recent crimes. During several interviews, police fed details of the crime to Mr. Lloyd, who was mentally ill, and they lied to him and convinced this mentally ill man that by confessing, he might help them smoke out the real killer. He later signed a confession. It gave a tape-recorded statement. The jury delivered it less than one hour before convicting him on the basis of this confession. There was no other substantial evidence against him. The judge said, I'd hang you if I could, but the death penalty was not available in Michigan at the time. But after almost two decades in prison, he was released after DNA evidence proved that this man was innocent and had falsely committed, confessed to a crime that he did not commit. On the right is Earl Washington who was released from prison just a few years ago here in Virginia after spending 18 years behind bars for, after being committed of a rape and a murder that we now know he did not commit after having been exonerated by DNA evidence. But the, this man, Mr. Washington, who was in fact confirmed to be mentally retarded, was able to confess to several crimes at the request of the police, some of which we know he could not have committed. That's the problem. Some of you are thinking to yourself, well, none of this concerns me because I'm not guilty of anything and I never will be and I will never represent people who do. Okay. Let's talk to you people, you innocent folks. Those of you who have never committed a crime and never will, and none of your clients will either. And, no, and you wouldn't go out with a girl who did. Fine. You better not talk to the police either, okay? Because number three, we'll put the guilty behind us. Forget about them. Let's talk about innocent people. Number three, even if your client is innocent and he denies his guilt, and almost entirely tells the truth, odds are good he will easily get carried away and tell some little lie or make some little mistake that will hang him. 
This is human nature. He gets in there, it's a stressful situation. Imagine a perfectly innocent client. The police say he's been guilty of a murder. He's totally innocent, as innocent as any one of us. So he goes in there and he meets with the police. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. I, w I was nowhere near there. I, I, I didn't kill him. I've never killed anybody. I don't have a gun. I've never had a gun. I've never touched a gun in my life. I, I was nowhere near Virginia Beach that, 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 that night. Uh, eh, eh. That last line was a lie. He went over the top. He was getting carried away. He got into this groove. He started saying all kinds of things, almost all of them true, that he knew would tend to exculpate himself. Then he got carried away and just said one thing that wasn't true, and unfortunately for him, they can prove that it wasn't true. He may be convicted on that basis alone. But let's say, to you, let's say, well, that's not a problem. I'll tell my client only to tell the truth. I've, I've met with him. I know he won't lie to the police. He won't make any mistakes. Okay, that's still no guarantee you won't be getting into trouble. Because even if your client is innocent and only tells the truth, and doesn't say anything that is false. Now, already, mind you, we're pretty well nigh into fantasy land. The odds of this being, anybody being able to pull this off are really quite slim, no matter how innocent they may be. But just the same, let's pretend. Let's assume he gives the police nothing but the truth. And he is totally innocent. He will always give the police some information that can be used to help convict him. Always. For example, suppose you tell this to the police. Here's what your client tells to the police in his denial of guilt. I don't know what you're talking about. I, would, I didn't kill Jones. I don't know who did. I wasn't anywhere near that place. I don't have a gun. I've never owned a gun in my life. I don't even know how to use a gun. Yeah, sure, I never liked the guy, but who did? I wouldn't kill him. I've never hurt anybody in my life, and I would never do such a thing. Let's suppose every word of that is true. 100% of it is true. What will the jury hear at trial? Officer Brooke, was there anything about this, your interrogation, your interview with the suspect that made you concerned that he might be the right one? Yes, there was. He confessed to me that he never liked the guy. And then the prosecutor put that up in big letters and he'll say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it's pretty clear that we've got the right guy here. We've proven that he was in Virginia Beach that night. That's opportunity. And remember, Officer Brooke admitted that after extended questioning, he was finally able to get the defendant to admit that he never liked the guy. There's your motive. Motive plus opportunity. Wham, bam. Please. <laughs> but juries eat it up and innocent people get convicted this way sometimes how often hopefully not too often but we know what happens the United States Supreme Court don't take my word for this in Ohio versus Ryan of the Supreme Court of the United States said quote one of the Fifth Amendment's basic functions is to protect innocent men who otherwise might be ensnared by ambiguous circumstances truthful responses of an innocent witness as well as those of a wrongdoer, may provide the government with incriminating evidence from the speaker's own mouth. See, it's not just some criminal defense attorney telling you this. Even the Supreme Court says I'm right. In the fact, under the facts of that case, by the way, in Ohio versus Rhino, a child tragically was died, apparently the result of shaken baby syndrome. The question was who had shaken this baby to death. And one of the possible suspects was a babysitter who had spent some time with the child that week. The babysitter's story was, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I did not kill the child. I, don't see, I did not see it happen. I don't know who shook the baby. It was never me. I never did anything of any violent nature to the child. The Ohio State Court said, well, you've got no Fifth Amendment privilege. You, by your own admission, told the investigators that you've done nothing wrong, that you were not involved. So obviously your answers can't incriminate you. The United States Supreme Court reversed and said, well, that's not true. Even though the ch this babysitter denies shaking the child, denies seeing the child die, denying knowing, denies knowing how the child died, this babysitter, by her own admission, apparently was being, was the, the government wanted to ask whether the babysitter might have been with the child at some point that week, during the week prior to the death. And that answer, although by itself not sufficient to convict anybody, could help convict her. That means she's got a Fifth Amendment right to have refused to answer to the question the court held. Because it could be used to help convict. Allman versus United States, the Supreme Court said more than 50 years ago, eerily prophetic, 
They said too many Americans, even those who should be better advised, view this privilege as a shelter for wrongdoers. They too readily assume that those who invoke it are either guilty of crime or commit perjury in claiming the privilege. That's not true and it never has been. But it gets worse. Can it get worse? It can. Number five. Even if your client is innocent and only tells her the truth and does not tell the police anything incriminating, which, by the way, is almost impossible to pull this off. I mean, imagine talking to the police for two, three, four hours and, and somebody like him can't somehow manage to extract from you something that can be used to help convict you. That'd be extraordinary. I don't think anybody's pulled it off. But, but even if you could pull it off, there's still a grave chance that his answers can and will be used to crucify you in a court of law if the police, no offense, don't recall his testimony with 100% accuracy. All right, now this brings us back to that pop quiz I warned you about. I told you earlier, remember, it's only been a few minutes, and you weren't up all night, and you weren't the subject of physical duress. You were in the relaxed setting of a classroom here. You were given heads up, advance notice that you would be quizzed on this. Question. We'll start with a couple of easy ones. Remember that article I read you about that? How many people did the police find shot to death last night at that Ocean View apartment that I told you about? A, 1, B, 2, C, 3, D, 4. Who says A? B. C. Get this. Get that with a camera. Show, get, move that camera around. Look how many hands we've got there for C. Okay, D. You're all wrong. Everybody who raised their hand, everybody who raised their hand, uh, you are the kind of people who should never talk to the police under any circumstances for as long as you live. Why is C not the right answer, by the way? If you know, raise your hand. Yes? Excellent. I didn't say anybody was shot. I didn't say gun, bullet, shooting, firearms. Didn't use any of those words. But I don't blame you if you thought that I did. This is the way the human mind works. We hear things, we fill in details. I said gangland-style slang. That may or may not imply something, but it doesn't mean that anybody was shot. And that's the problem. You see, even if your client is innocent and only tells the truth and doesn't tell them anything incriminating, and his statement is videotaped, his answers can be used to crucify him. You might say, wait, how can that happen? I insisted, in my insistence, I called the police and I said, look, if you want to talk to my client, you can talk to him, but only if you videotape the whole thing. I don't want there to be any debate between the two of you over what happened. Okay, we'll videotape the whole thing. If the police don't recall their questions with 100% accuracy, he'll be convicted on that statement alone. For example, suppose a man goes to the police, they say we're investigating a possible murder, a shooting. And the guy says, quote, I don't know who killed Jones, Officer Brooke, with all due respect. I, it wasn't me. I've never touched or fired a gun in my life. How can that help incriminate this man? How could that possibly be used against this man to help convict him? You would think it's inconceivable. But it's as easy as pie. All the officer has to do is read this statement to the jury, and then the prosecutor says, Officer Brooke, was there anything about that statement that confused you or surprised you? Yes, there was, he says in a moment of sinister high drama in the courtroom. And what was that? And then Officer Brooke turns to the jurors and he says, I never said anything about a shooting. I said we were investigating a murder. He was the one who brought up a gun. Then you turn to your client, and your client says, that's not true, that's not true. I remember he was the one, or one of the cops, I was with them for three hours, one of them in the car said something about, they said they had a witness that I was the shooter. Okay, I'll put you on the stand. And then the, your client testifies, no, 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 they did tell me shooting. I mentioned, they mentioned it before I said anything about a gun. They brought it up first. And then the police said, that's not true. And now what, it's your word against theirs? For what? You're gambling with your client's life. And police officers can very easily make a mistake like that, just as so many of you did just a few minutes ago about whether you recalled having heard me say something about somebody actually being shot. Police make mistakes, innocently, inadvertently, 
unintentionally any statement, no matter how exculpatory it may seem on its face, can be used to crucify you all by itself. If the police are either willing to lie, not likely, or if they just have an innocent misrecollection of the details as to what they did and did not tell you before you told them what you said. All of these, by the way, all of these problems disappear if you take Justice Jackson's advice and say, thank you very much, officer, but no thanks. How about this one? Here we go. Now, here's the most surprising of all. I've saved the most surprising one for last. Let's suppose you've got the following scenario. Your client's thinking about talking to the police. He acts like, he says, I've got nothing to hide. They think that I killed somebody in Virginia Beach last night. Well, we're, and, and, this is what, and this is what your client tells you in confidence. I don't know who robbed that store. It wasn't me. In fact, I've got a pretty good alibi. I wasn't even in Virginia Beach that night, last night. I was four hours away visiting my mother in the Outer Banks. Unfortunately, no, I did not pay for gas with a credit card. I used cash, and so I've got no witnesses that can prove I was there except my word. And, of course, Mama, for what that's worth, which is nothing. Uh, but uh, so your client says, so the police want to talk to me, and I want to seem cooperative. So what I'll do is I'll tell them that I was in the Outer Banks last night. Now, there's nothing on its face incriminating about any of that. Let's assume, by the way, that you believe with all your doubt you've given your client a polygraph exam. You've known him for years. You've been going to the same Bible study for 30 years. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's telling you the truth. And he's not admitting anything. He's not admitting motive. He's not admitting opportunity. He's not admitting that he was there. How on earth could this come back to haunt us? How on earth could this come back to be used against us? Speaking of things coming back to haunt us, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. And you're listening to Professor James Duane talking about the dangers of talking to the police here on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Be honest, raise your hand if you really think the answer to that question is I can't see how it could possibly be used against me. Well, you're wrong, you're dead wrong, you're always wrong. Everything you say, every time you talk to the police, you will regret it. You see, the problem is, here it is, this is the last point. I think it's almost even if your client is innocent and only tells the truth and doesn't tell the police anything incriminating and the entire interview questions and answers are are videotaped your even his truthful answers can be helped to use crucify even an innocent man if the police through no fault of theirs end up in the possession of any evidence even mistaken and unreliable evidence that anything your client told them was false even if in fact it was true again going back to this example from a moment ago Let's suppose I tell I go ahead and I meet with the police. I can't think I got nothing to hide. I tell them I was in the Outer Banks last night, officer. How can that be used to convict me? By itself, it cannot. It cannot help at all by itself. But what if I later find out, to my horror, after I put my cards on the table, that they've got a witness, a girl that I went to high school with, an unimpeachable witness. We've never been enemies. She'd have no reason to lie. She swears she thinks she saw me in Virginia Beach last night, a couple of blocks away from that store, about an hour before it was robbed. Now, her testimony by itself isn't going to help the prosecutor. Help! if she's all they've got, I'll get this case thrown out before trial. But if, like an idiot, I talked to the police and I told them the truth, I told them I was in the Outer Banks, and now, lo and behold, tragically, it turns out they've got a witness, a false, mistaken, confused, but sincere and credible witness, who could testify that I was here at Virginia Beach, now they're likely to get a conviction. Because what they'll do, I've just turned this cop and this woman into the government star witnesses. They'll put her, hell, they'll put Officer Brooke on to testify about how my client lied to him about being in the Outer Banks. And then they'll put on this girl, this girl who otherwise would have not even helped with her case at all, who will testify, no, that's not true, that was a lie. I saw Mr. Duane's client here in Virginia an hour before the robbery, not so far from the store. By herself, she would not have helped the government in any significant way. 
But what I have just done, you see, is given them the other part of the puzzle. And now I'm doomed. Just ask them. I, I, close, I close with this example. Here we have a couple of recent celebrity examples of why it is that even people who admit nothing always end up regretting it. On the left, we have Martha Stewart. She was the subject of an extensive government investigation that was looking into the possibility that she was guilty of violations of certain federal laws, securities laws, fraud kinds of things. They couldn't pin that on her, but they were able to get a conviction because she denied it. Talking to the police and later to some of the shareholders, she said, no, it's not true. I was not guilty. So they charged her with lying to federal investigators. And they got a conviction, and she was sentenced to five months in prison. Marion Jones on the right side, another person who would still be out today if she had always uh, uh, taken the advice that I'm giving you now. She was asked if she had ever used steroids, a controlled substance. And instead of taking the fifth, she said, no, I, I never took steroids when I won those Olympic gold medals. Uh, later on, it turned out that she was lying. She worked out a deal. She pled guilty. She admitted that she was lying. And she, over her strenuous, tear-filled objection, even though she has two young children, was just recently sentenced to prison for six months. The guy who sold her the steroids, the pusher, he got only four months. But she got six months because she lied to the police and said that she did not do it. You see the problem. Michael Vick, who originally pled guilty, as you know, to these charges with respect to the operation of this dog uh, combat sort of operation in his home. Uh, at sentencing, like many other criminal defendants, even though he eventually pled guilty at sentencing, one of the reasons his sentence was a little harder than it might have otherwise been, the judge said, was because when he initially met with the police, he lied to them and said, I didn't do anything. I, I didn't do it. I don't know what you're talking about. Even guilty people, but not only guilty people, will always end up regretting talking to the police. So my advice to you, Justice Jackson was right. Any sane, competent lawyer in his right mind will always tell every client under all circumstances, I don't care if you're innocent. I don't care if it's the truth. If it's the truth, great. We'll tell the jury all about it. There'll be time enough to put our cards on the table. But before we get there, I haven't seen yet what the police got. They may have mistaken and confused witnesses who will contradict even the truthful stuff that you say. We have no way to know, no way to predict whether the information that you give them, even if truthful and reliable, will end up unwittingly dispelling our demise. So keep your mouth shut. Don't answer any questions. Let's take the fifth. You'll be glad that you did. God bless the Bill of Rights and the geniuses who bequeathed it to us. But now, in fairness, I give equal time, or what's left of equal time, <laughs> to a police officer who will explain to the extent to which, if any, he agrees or disagrees with anything I've got to say. I have no idea to know what, what he's going to say, but it'll be interesting. Here, let me give him the microphone. Give, let's give him a hand. <laughs> officer George Group, the Virginia Beach Police Department. I cannot talk that fast. Because <laughs> I took notes on some of the things you said. And everything he said was true. Okay? And it was right and it was correct. But something Professor Duane brought up, are any of you guilty of anything? How many of you drove here today? Anybody go above 55 on the interstate? Anybody drive at home and go above 55 on the interstate? Because if you... If you stay, I know, I know. I remember, but I was doing it anyway. I was doing it anyway. I did it intentionally. And there, and there you go. And people are inherently honest, and that's their biggest downfall. Okay, they, they really are, or they want to tell their story. And if you drive 55 on the interstate where it's 55, the only thing you're going to do is meet the person behind you because they're going to rear end you and you're going to get run over. Okay, so that, that's a fact. But everybody does something that they can get in trouble for. I can follow as a police officer when I was uniform. I could follow a car however long I needed to, and eventually they're going to do something illegal, and I can pull them over. 
So just be aware of that. Don't, don't think you're so innocent in such a thing. Uh, when you get stopped for a traffic ticket, everyone likes to be somewhat honest. And what's the first thing the police officer asks you? Do you know how fast you're going? If the speed limit's 35, you'll say, oh, 38, 40, because you want to be kind of honest even though you're doing 50. <laughs> you just said 38, 40. You just admitted to breaking the law. You just confessed. So they can go to court with that, with a confession that you are exceeding the speed limit. You need to think about those things, and when you do become defense attorneys, which I may, who knows, you need to think about those things for your clients. The other thing you need to think about your clients, and this is going to seem very terse, people are stupid. Your clients are stupid. And I've had defense attorneys come up to me, matter of fact, one on a uh, motion to suppress just Tuesday, come up to me and tell me his client was stupid. Okay? They're very straightforward. They do foolish things. They talk to the police. And that was James Duane's famous or infamous Don't Talk to the Police lecture. James Duane's book that we were talking about earlier in the show is titled You Have the Right to Remain Innocent, which should be essential reading for everyone in this country, and it should be part of our education.
about it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening and until next time have a great week (laughs) 